You are listening to the official podcast of Refuge, where we believe all people matter to God. Good morning once again. I'm Pastor Matt, the lead pastor here at Refuge, and uh, I'm excited about this series because it's going to take us on a journey to really explore, uh, I believe, what was the most powerful sermon Jesus ever really preached, and it was quite lengthy, and the Beatitudes is just the first segment of his message. It's actually three chapters. I think it's five, six, and seven in the book of Matthew, but uh, I... This is my last Sunday before I go to Africa. I'm gonna actually be leaving after service, be rushing to the airport, maybe not rushing, we'll drive the speed limit, um, and leaving from central Wisconsin, and we'll be heading to Minneapolis, then from there to Amsterdam, and from Amsterdam down to the nation of Ghana, uh, West Africa. So we'll be, I'll be there for 19 days with Pastor Bob Weed, and so you pray for me. I believe there's a sign-up if you want to be part of a prayer cover during my time there and our time there. But we'll be ministering in, in different cities, doing pastors and leaders conferences. And, and I tell you, I, I can remember this, this one graduate, because we have Bible schools, uh, and the one in Kamasi, which is sent to the central region of Ghana. There was a young pastor who just graduated from a Bible school in Kumasi, and he wanted me to come to his church. And so we agreed, and, and so after uh, uh, having breakfast, we headed towards this very, very remote place. And you know, we kept going, and usually my kids are the ones that saying, are we there yet? Well, I was saying, are we there yet? Because just when we thought we were at the end of the earth, there was still more. And, and the Bible says to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And so finally we drive into this community and it was primitive. Uh, it was just a dirt road right through the middle of it and, and uh, just a small community. And I, I found out a little history about the community. Uh, years ago, before the gospel was brought into that community, they were cannibals. They would eat guests. And so even some of the first Christians that went in there, they gave their lives for the cause of the gospel. Uh, they became somebody's dinner. Uh, so I'm thinking, oh, this is quite the heritage of this community. But we went into this little church, and we're walking up this hill, and it's pretty rugged. I mean, it's not like when the rains, everything washes out, so there's gullies. There's, you, you have to really be careful. And you can take nice shoes, and they can get all dusty in a hurry. But so I'm, I'm making my way up here, and then there's this little church at the top of this hill. And the pastor is standing in front of the church, and all of the children of the church are lined up in front to greet me. I tell you, I'll never forget that image of these children and this pastor uh, standing to, to welcome us, and then all of us other people were behind the children. And so the, and some of these children, I know it was the first time they saw a white man and their eyes go, <laughs> so we had some pictures with that, but going into that church and ministering that pastor who was a graduate of a Bible school that you made possible where he could be trained and equipped to go into a small community. And, and then we brought a, a computer with us as a gift and gave it to the pastor and because they, they, well, they have electricity and they, they had their first computer and it's so glad and so rejoicing of what we were able to do to bless that, that congregation in that small village. 
And so uh, I'm looking forward for another opportunity. And again, thank you for, for connecting with us to see this vision come alive as, as we're changing a nation through the teaching, preaching of the word as, as the word goes out. Communities are being impacted by these young pastors and ministries that are being gra- graduating from our Bible school. So we'll be doing graduation services and ordination services as we send more out to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ in Ghana. So I do have a piece of humor this morning, but I think we should pray first. Father, we honor you and we thank you for the ministry of your word I thank you for this body of believers and that we, Father, can be tuned into you this morning and and to hear your voice and hear your word. I thank you for the Spirit of God that gives us insight, understanding, and revelation to the truth that we're going to be, Father, unveiling and discussing in this message. In Jesus' name, we give you praise. Amen. Uh, So the story goes there were two friends that were sitting on the front porch and they were just talking about life. And one said to the other, he said, you know, you guys, you and your wife have been married for 30 years. You seem to have just a great marriage. You seem to be happy. You seem to get along. Uh, What really is the key? What's the answer? What's the secret to having a successful marriage in a relationship? And he said, well, uh, it's three words. And um, you probably know what these three words are. And... Every day, mostly every day, I would say these three words to my wife. And that's why I believe that we have a great relationship, we have a happy marriage. And the other guy was thinking, oh, I know what those three words are. Are you thinking what these three words might be too? But before he could say what he thought the three words were, the guy said, yeah, the three words that I say every day is, I was wrong. (laughs) Now most of you thought he was gonna say, I I love you. But, you know, let me just talk about that because it's so difficult to admit that we're wrong when we're wrong. Because we don't wanna be wrong. We wanna be right. And so that's a challenging thing because it takes humility to admit that you're wrong. But yet, that puts you in a position where you can change and grow. So be willing to admit that you're wrong when you're wrong. You don't always have to be right. But some people live where they have to be right. They have to live perfect. But yet, they miss it from time to time. They're wrong and and they have issues and challenges. So uh, this sermon about the Beatitudes, and we're going to look at the first one today, but we're going to kind of give you a scope or a backdrop of of this whole teaching by Jesus. And we realize that uh, in the teaching of the Beatitudes, it's called the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, And in this backdrop, this is where Jesus is teaching how we are to live our lives. Uh, He identifies what's important in God's sight. In fact, the Sermon on the Mount emphasizes his teaching on ethical behavior, uh, how you're supposed to act. And we see this actually in the Sermon on the Mount. It it spans three chapters, as I said, chapter 5 through 7. It takes place early in Jesus' earthly ministry, after he was baptized by John the Baptist. 
uh, this uh, Sermon on the Mount was preached. It was actually preached in Galilee on, this, on a small mountain. It's, it's really more like a hill. Um, and it's actually on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. In fact, it's one of my favorite places in Israel. I've been to Israel twice, and both times we went to where Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount. And as I stood in that, in that area, on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee, I just tried to envision the multitude of people sitting on that hill and Jesus standing. And what was interesting, uh, where he was standing, and how the mountain was laid out or the hill was laid out, his voice would project. And so we, we even tested that to see how our voice projected in that particular area. See, Jesus didn't have a PA system, so he used the natural land and surroundings to be able to amplify his voice. And, and so it, it must have worked. But, uh, uh, and so the sermon is the longest recorded teaching of Jesus in the New Testament. And he begins the Sermon on the Mount with the Beatitudes. And so that is important to know what comes first. And so we want to look at that scripture. If you turn to Matthew chapter 5, and I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version, and we'll start at verse 1. Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Now here we see in this passage eight Beatitudes. Now, most sources agree that there's eight Beatitudes. Some claim that there may be nine because of verses 11 and 12. But really, verses 11 and 12 only elaborate what Jesus said in verse 10. And I'm going to read those two verses as well. In verse 11 and 12, it says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you, falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, if I was to come up with a ninth beatitude, you know what it would be? Blessed are the flexible, for they shall not get bent out of shape. <laughs> yeah. I told my, my wife knew I was going to share that, so she was ready for that one. Okay. She just didn't know when it was going to come. But, yeah. uh, and it's interesting. I actually, in my research, I looked online about Beatitudes, and I couldn't believe how many people come up with their own Beatitudes. There's a list of all kinds of things people say. But what, what that tells me is Jesus got people thinking in, in these declarations and these statements that are so relevant to how we live our lives and what really matters in life. 
Now, Beatitudes, I want to define this for you and help you understand this word because it's kind of an interesting word. It's actually defined as a condition or statement of blessedness. Uh, it is the word for blessed, happy, or fortunate. It, it, and blessed really means to be happy, okay? And not that uh, we want to just be a bless me club because it's not about so much your happiness. It's really having joy in the strength of, of God inside of you, okay? Uh, and because happiness has to do with what's happening around you. It's many times circumstantial, where the joy of the Lord is our strength, it's inward. So we can have joy even though we might not necessarily be happy, okay? So I would rather have joy than be happy, but happiness is also addressed in the word, and so we need to look at it. We need to take a look at it. Now, Merriam-Webster defines beatitude as a state of utmost bliss. Wow, think about that. Oh, we just in our element here. Noah Webster defines it as, the 1828 version, defines it as blessedness, the declaration of blessedness made by our Savior to particular virtues. And then when we look at the Greek, the Greek word actually translated blessed means spiritual well-being and prosperity. This refers to deep joy of the soul. So even there's that reference of deep joy in this word of blessing. Now, how do I define beatitudes? I define it as conditions of the heart that result in true happiness. Or we could say attitudes reflecting actions that result in happiness. And, and I don't want to uh, overemphasize uh, our desire to be happy because it's, you know, but there's something more, there's something that God wants to do inside that will affect what's happening around us, that can cause the joy and the blessing of God to be evident and to be manifest in our lives. So in, the, in this series, uh, I will address these timeless truths Jesus declared concerning heart. And so we want to address these things because we're going to talk about heart issues. Um, Beatitudes have to do with having a kingdom mindset and the right attitudes that you have in order to live with God's blessing upon your life. Because I don't know, I don't know about you, but I want to live with the blessing of God in my life. I, I want God's blessing to be evident for others to see as, as a witness and a testimony of God's goodness and God's love. You know, I don't object to being blessed of God, but it's interesting because the blessing is not just for me, it's really for others. God spoke to Abraham, he said, I will bless you and make you a blessing. The reason God blessed Abraham is so that he could be a blessing, okay? So it doesn't stop with you just being blessed because God's intent is for you to be a blessing in how you serve, how you live, how you give, and how you impact the world around you. I want to make a difference, and, and that's my heart cry. I go to Africa not because it's comfortable or it's convenient. It costs money. It costs time. It's, it's out of my comfort zone, but I do it because I desire for God to use me, and I want to make an impact in this world, and God's opened that door, and whatever door God opens for you, God wants to use you to make an impact because there are significant 
seeds of greatness and amazing potential in each and every one of you. The value of your life is, is beyond what money can pay. Because the scripture says, what shall a profit a man if he should gain the whole world and lose his soul? So you can't even compare the wealth of this entire world with the value of your life. So what's a life worth? Well, you can't, it's, it's cost, you can't even put a price on it, okay? All right, that was all free, that was extra. Yeah. The, the Beatitudes addresses issues of the heart that reflect attitudes which result in the blessing of God in our lives. In fact, the Beatitudes are the code of conduct for Christian living that really reflects the heart of God. I really believe that. In each of the Beatitudes, we see a condition connected with a promise. There's a condition connected with a promise. And sometimes the conditions, it might say, okay, I don't like this condition. But there's a promise connected with that condition. And Jesus was trying to move the hearts to bring a paradigm shift in the culture. To change the way people think. To change the way people approach life. To change the way people address what's going wrong in their life. Because things may be going wrong in your life, but that doesn't necessarily mean you're all messed up. That's just life, okay? Things sometimes go wrong. But it's how we respond to what's going wrong that makes the difference. And having that mentality in, in a kingdom mindset, to think from heaven's perspective, not just the earthly perspective. Now, the Beatitudes actually have three parts. The first part, number one, is the adjective, blessed. Number two, the identification of the blessed person. And number three, the condition assuring the blessedness. So Jesus is trying to say, okay, there's a blessing for you, but there's a condition that needs to be met for you to receive this blessing, okay? Now we note that some of these blessings may not be realized immediately. But you need to understand from the mindset of God, he doesn't think temporal, he thinks eternal. And when we, when we begin to think more eternally minded, then we can handle things a whole lot easier. Because so many times we're just focused on the here and now. We don't see the bigger picture of eternity that's before us because we are living in a temporal frame of time and space. But in this temporal frame of time and space, we have the potential to impact all of eternity. So what you do now will affect not only your eternity, but the eternity of others, okay? So now, again, let's look at verse three, Matthew chapter five. Verse 3, it says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Now this first beatitude doesn't seem to make any sense at all. There seems to be a contradiction. How can being poor be a blessing? How can be being in poverty be a blessing? Well, I know from one frame of mind, being in Africa, I've seen the poor blessed. I can remember going out to a, a playground one time with kids, and they were playing with sticks. 
and they, were, they had a soccer ball that should have been thrown away. They were happy. They were having fun. There was joy in their face. There was life in their eyes. It, their joy, their blessing wasn't based on what they had. It was based on who they were. And they knew how to enjoy life and, and make the best of what they had. So often living in a materialistic society, we've been corrupted from some of that virtue of really, really being able to appreciate life, to appreciate one another, because things get in the way. And so that's something that we've got to fight and address in this culture so that we don't become so full of, of greed and so full of desire to have more. Um, but yet, if we properly steward the blessing in our life, we can use what we have to make a difference in this world. Right? Okay, and, and uh, there's so much I can say. There's so much in this message, and I don't know if I'll have all uh, the time to get through this, this all this morning. Um, but the economically rich tend to trust in their money rather than God. The question is, who or what do you trust in? And, and all you have to do is look at your money. It says, in God we trust. That's a reminder. That's a reminder of where trust is. It's not in our money. Now, at the very beginning of his sermon, Jesus identifies the condition that we must be in to receive the kingdom of God. We discover that we do not have the spiritual resources to even put Jesus' teaching into practice or to live by God's standard, let alone enter the kingdom of heaven. We, we don't have what it takes in ourself. So when what Jesus is addressing, he's addressing the condition of the heart in our desperation, our desperate need of God to do something, but it's us recognizing that condition. Now it's interesting, um, those who first, or who experience this first aspect of this beatitude will also experience the second aspect of this beatitude, which is the kingdom of heaven. But uh, Matthew 18, 4, we, we see something here because there's a key. There's a key here, and it's called humility. And that's really what this uh, is addressing. This beatitude is addressing. It's addressing humility. And it's important to understand that God wants us to experience his kingdom his kingdom influence in our life. Romans 5.17 says the kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. It's an influence in our life that makes a difference. The kingdom of heaven is the, the domain or territory where the king, God himself, rules and reigns. It's where God exercises authority and power in that realm. That's his kingdom. And that's where God wants us to be, in the realm of his influence and kingdom that that's the dominating factor in influence in our life. In Matthew 18, 4, Jesus said, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now, the kingdom of heaven is not where God lives right now. It's where his influence is ruling and reigning right now. So we enter the kingdom of heaven. It's something we walk in in this life as believers. And as a Christian, if you are not operating in the kingdom of heaven, 
then you're missing out on what Christianity is all about because you can be in that influence right now. It's something you can have right now. And, and that's, that's, now there's the promise of having a place, but we have heaven's rule here in the earth. That's why Jesus said, pray, thy kingdom will come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God wants heaven's rule to invade the earth so that it's influencing our life, our households, our communities. That's God's desire. Now, poor in spirit, again, is referring to humility. In James chapter 4, verse 6, it says, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. In James 4, 10, it says, humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. So being poor in spirit is recognizing our spiritual condition without God. We're impoverished. Poor in spirit commends those who realize their destitute condition before God and they identify their great need. Now Jesus is not glorifying poverty in this beatitude. Now, is there any relationship? between being poor in your pocketbook and being poor in your spirit? Well, there could be, but that's not the emphasis. Those who are financially poor live with a sense of desperate need, depending on others, to get along. But being poor in spirit is living in desperation of God. I'm desperate for you, Lord. See? The spiritually poor live with a sense of desperate need and dependence upon God. Poor in spirit is not referring to one's economic condition in this beatitude, but the condition of one's heart attitude towards God. See, David was poor in spirit, but he was a wealthy man. Poor in spirit doesn't mean you have to be poor because poverty is a curse. It's not a blessing. It's listed as one of the curses. And, and we see in, in Psalm chapter 40, verse 17, the psalmist David himself declares, as for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O oh my God. Now, he was talking about his spiritual condition and his spiritual need. That's what he's relating to. Because he is a king. He had, he had wealth. He had abundance. But he didn't trust in his abundance. He recognized that there was a greater need in his life that riches couldn't fill. Now spiritually, we acknowledge our, our total dependency upon God. Jesus said in John 15, 5, apart from me you can do nothing. Apart from me you can do nothing. In Proverbs 22, verse 4, it says, the reward for humility and the fear of the Lord is riches, honor, and life. Wow. How did that get in there? So, God wants to bring us into this humble state so that he can truly bring us into a blessed state. Very interesting when we, we look at this concept. Poverty and spirituality are not synonymous unless you really understand what being poor in spirit really is. It's really being dependent upon God. Amen. It's recognizing, Lord, I can't do this. 
I can't be who you expect me to be. I need your help. I need your grace. I need your enablement. And so that's where God comes in. When an apostle Paul, he made a declaration, I am what I am by the grace of God. It's his enablement helping me to do what I'm supposed to do in this life. Hmm. I need to share a couple other statements here. Being poor in spirit does not mean you have an inferiority complex or self-hatred. It just means you're humble. And, and what is humility? Some people have a false concept of what humility is. Some people think this is humility. You can't look anybody in the eye. They have their head down. And, and you know, it, that person might be full of shame. But true humility is the ability to receive from God. To receive from God what you don't deserve, what you haven't earned. You know, we, we deserve hell because of sin. But Jesus offers life through forgiveness of, and forgiveness of sins. So humility is able to appropriate and receive what God has done for us. Amen. Now a proud person says, I don't need God. That's the opposite of humility. Pride is simply resisting God. Because they say, oh, I don't need that religion. It's only a crutch. You guys are weak. You need God. I can make it on my own. No, I, I wouldn't want to be that person. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. He gives his enablement to the humble. Now, being poor in spirit is the opposite of arrogant self-confidence, which dominates and rides over other people and treats God as irrelevant. What then characterizes those who are poor in spirit? Let me share with you. Those who are poor in spirit humble themselves before God and receive his grace. Poor in spirit is the personal acknowledgement of our spiritual bankruptcy before God. See, it's like the tax collector standing in the temple before God and beating on his breast and says, God, be merciful to me, for I'm a sinner. That's the poor in spirit. It's an honest confession that without Jesus Christ, we are sinful in our nature and hopelessly lost and hell-bound. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. It's an expression of repentance that acknowledges our desperate need for God. See, blessed are those who realize that they are spiritually bankrupt. This beatitude addresses the self-delusion that we are something, that we are something when we are really in desperate need of God. See, this is a starting place. That's why it's the first beatitude. We may start out poor spiritually, but we don't have to stay that way because we can be rich spiritually with God's presence in our life. So what can we learn from this beatitude? And I have my three points. You love my three points? Kind of like summing things up here as we come to a close. What can we learn from this beatitude? Number one, we all come to God in the same condition. 
we are spiritually bankrupt. We all come to God in the same condition. We are spiritually bankrupt. And number two, humility is the attitude of the heart necessary to receive from God and enter his kingdom. Humility is the attitude of the heart necessary to receive from God and enter his kingdom. And humility is something you have to do. You have to humble yourself. I can't do that for you. I can pray. I can encourage you to humble yourself. You see, pride is often the only sin that you don't see in yourself. Now, you can see it in others. And others can recognize pride in you before you see it in yourself. It's that subtle. Pride is subtle. We don't think we're proud when we really are. But we must humble ourselves. I, I make it a daily practice when I go into my prayer time in my prayer closet to humble myself before the Lord. Years ago, the Lord dealt with me and he showed me that every day I fail to humble myself is a day that pride can enter my heart. So I make it a point I make a determination every day to humble myself. And that can take on different ways. I just say, Lord, I humble myself. I submit myself to you. I yield my heart to you. I commit my body to you. I give this day to you. Lord, I submit to your word, to your spirit, to your will, to your plan. I don't want to do my own thing. Lord, I want your will to be executed in my life. See, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, he, he talked about that. He said, not my will, but thy will be done. See, that's humility. In Philippians chapter 2, it talks about how Jesus humbled himself. The creator of the world, the God of the universe, humbled himself to the very point of death, to die on a cross. You know, he could have chosen a more dignified way to die. Crucifixion was not dignified. It was the worst form of execution in the day. Jesus humbled himself to die for us. What an example. And number three, the third point we can learn from this beatitude, pride is your greatest enemy. Pride is your greatest enemy. Pride will keep you from coming to God. Pride will keep you in your sin. It will keep you in the lie that you believed. Pride will hold you back from receiving what God has for you. And what you're hanging on to is so much less than what he has for you. But you've got to let it go. You've got to get rid of your pride. And you need to come to God with an open heart and say, Lord, here I am. Billy Graham, at the end of every crusade, they would sing, just as I am. That's how God wants you, just as you are. You don't have to clean up before you take a bath, do you? No. You just come to God and let him clean you up. You don't have to try to figure it all out before you come to God. No, just come to him, and he'll work it out. And there's a scripture that we want to close with in Romans 6, verse 17 and 18. It says, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin had become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. See, God wants us to have a new master. 
He doesn't want that master to be sin any longer. And there's a phrase in this passage in verse 18, it says, have become obedient from the heart. See, it's a heart issue. We become obedient from the heart. That's how we get into the kingdom. That's how we get out of sin's bondage. That's how we come under righteousness. And you might say, what does it mean to be a slave to righteousness? Well, I tell you, there's freedom there because you are indebted to the very nature of God because God is a righteous God. And we can be enslaved to that. That's not bondage, that's freedom. Saying, oh, you're living for God, you can't do all these things. Oh, what are we missing out of? Thanks for listening to The Refuge Podcast. For more information about who we are and to listen to more inspirational messages for free, visit us online at wearerefuge.net.